Hey there, spooky friends. It's Megan. And before we hop into the episode, I want to tell y'all a little bit about what we've got coming up in person next. We're so excited to announce that our friends at Little Cottage Brewing have invited us back for a monthly spot with trivia. So that means it's time to mark your calendars with a few dates to come hang out with us and play along. On December 13th, join us for Creepy Holiday Trivia, where we'll have questions ranging from spooky holiday traditions around the world, mischievous holiday mythical beings, holiday-themed horror movies, and more. Then, on January 17th, join us again for a deck themed around fears and phobias. Last but not least on the calendar is February 14th for a theme of romance and scorned lovers in horror. We can't wait to see you on December 13th, January 17th, and February 14th for some excellent craft beer and a scary good time. Okay, okay, okay. I get it. Now, on to the episode. Well, hi, friends. It's Melissa here with another mini-sode, this time about the stories of women in classical Greek mythology. Just as a heads up, I'm going to be exploring some instances of misogyny and assault, since it's really hard to find a traditional interpretation of myth that doesn't contain one or the other. If some of this sounds a little familiar, I may have also mentioned it in our Clash of the Titans episode, which you should definitely check out if you haven't already. So let's go ahead and get into it. Classical mythology, as we know it, has always been a bit tricky for me. First of all, what do we even define as classical, and why is it predominantly based in the Western world? There's a wealth of myths and legends found throughout every other continent that is just as ancient, yet it seems like Greek and Roman mythology is the main well from which we draw, with Norse mythology coming in a close second. Westerners learn it in school, our favorite authors use it as inspiration, and we are consistently taught from a young age that this is the purest example of mythology. This focus has given birth to a great misconception that Greece is the one great source of Western civilization. After all, they invented politics, the alphabet, and philosophy, right? Well, that's not actually true at all, and it demonstrates an inherent bias that we as Westerners have towards history. We totally miss the influences other cultures across the globe had on the Greeks and their stories. We see myths as having one true telling and reject other versions because it doesn't necessarily fit our worldview. And that goes completely against what mythology is at its core. It's not a history. There is no cut and dry truth to it. It's a cultural attempt to explain the mysteries of each generation. Things like love, death, birth, and whatever other miraculous forces that hold sway over our lives. As such, it's a great reflection of the values of its authors. Mythology is not written by those who lived it or survived it. It has no witnesses, and in all likelihood, it never did. Therefore, it is basically a living core of stories, characters, and places that are used to inspire, warn, and give context to the world around us that every generation adds to and contextualizes. I've always loved Greek mythology, but found many depictions of the characters I love hard to reconcile with my ideals of them. Atalanta, the great woman athlete, was really finally beaten in a foot race because she got distracted by a shiny golden apple that was tossed by her opponent. And then not only that, she went on to actually marry the cheater. Hippolyta, leader of the Amazons, willingly left her home and sisters to marry Theseus and live a life of oppression in Athens. And of course, how can we forget ruthless Hera, queen of the gods and goddess of marriage, portrayed as the ever-vindictive wife who punishes not her wandering husband, but the innocent women he forces himself upon. Are these really the stories that we're stuck with? 
Starting around 2000, authors finally started saying, screw this. We start with Margaret Atwood, naturally, who wrote the Penelope ad, which tells Penelope's story from her own point of view and makes her more complex than just Odysseus's virtuous wife. She's a woman who had a childhood, who ran a household, who had friends, who had hope for her son to have a better life beyond the wars that she had seen. And further, she's accompanied in the afterlife by the 12 murdered maids she watched her husband condemn to death and her son torture and kill. Yes, Odysseus's adventures with monsters are grand and exciting, but there is something just as inspirational as a woman with such perseverance, equally, if not more clever than her husband, who kept an entire island in order under such uncertain circumstances. She tolerated the suitors not out of weakness or fear, but out of strategy. If it did turn out that Odysseus died, it wasn't exactly in her best interest as queen to have an empty household with no allies. The Memoirs of Helen of Troy by Amanda Elliott were another flagship piece that finally gave the face that launched a thousand ships a modern voice. And in my opinion, few in Greek mythology have been more wronged than Helen. A Spartan princess, her reputation of beauty even when she was born set her as a target for every lustful eye in the Mediterranean. She was kidnapped at the age of 10 by Theseus, just to prove that he could, which in turn started a massive war between Sparta and Athens, of course, one of many. And then again, as an adult, she's carried off like a bag of loot to Troy, and, well, a lot of us knows what happens from there. What many translations and retellings of the Trojan War often fail to focus on is the wealth of Troy. The Greeks weren't just going to reclaim an innocent woman who had been kidnapped. She was the excuse they needed to plunder. And as a Spartan woman, it seemed natural to label her as a headstrong adulteress. Spartan women were among the most independent in ancient Greece, as they received quality education and were well known for being outspoken with independent thoughts. Of course it would be a Spartan woman who would run off with a foreign prince. Let's not even entertain the thought that she was taken against her will because her husband decided to leave her alone with a group of men he agreed to host that she didn't even know, which, by the way, was absolutely unheard of at the time. But many male writers seem to gloss over this. But now, it seems as if our generation is spoiled for choice with woman-voiced Greek myth retellings. We have Circe, A Thousand Ships, The Silence of the Girls, Ariadne, The Children of Jocasta, and most recently, Stone Blind, which focuses on Medusa, and so many other brilliantly written tales that are voiced by women around whom they center. And, contrary to what the more unsavory fans of Greek classics may tout with their shallow knowledge and turn-of-the-century translations, these new stories are actually well-founded in ancient literary sources. Euripides was one of the most prolific playwrights, and many of his works not only centered on women, but featured them as main characters and protagonists. Some of his plays even have the female lead speaking the most dialogue of any character, dialogue which shows these women as people who are easier to sympathize with, who are under duress, who have no other choice. Medea, Helen, Clytemnestra all have blood on their hands. But wouldn't you if you were in their shoes? Could you really say you would do anything differently if you were abused and oppressed as they were? If you saw the ones you love murdered for a cause that you had nothing to do with? This is what I find most beautiful about mythology. The myths of a culture don't end when those who created them are dead. They shape every generation they touch and continue to morph into different versions that reflect our values. 
true. There is that subset of our Western population that uses these myths as a way to perpetuate toxic masculinity, xenophobia, and the weakness of women. I completely understand why other more progressive audiences may wish to give it a wide berth. But today, instead of Sophocles and Euripides, we have our Margaret Atwoods, our Ursula Le Guin's, Natalie Haynes, Madeline Miller, Jennifer Saint, Emily Wilson, and a wealth of other motivated, intelligent women scholars and creatives. These individuals began a movement to have femininity and womanhood as equally lauded as the masculine heroes whose actions so often have defined women in myth. Medusa, Circe, Helen, Ariadne, and so many others. They're women who for so long had no voice, no true personality that had been preserved because it didn't suit the generations of men who have primarily led the classical narrative. But that's what's changing, because now we're seeing our values as women popularized in these tales. We are shaping this mythology to portray women not as accessories, not as plot devices, but as the warriors and survivors that we are. We are instilling our values of equity, our fight-free quality, into these stories that will undoubtedly live on to inspire future generations, just like the ancient plays and poems of old. We're making it our own. And the fact that this movement shows no signs of stopping fills me with the one thing Pandora left in her jar. Hope. The Clever Cools podcast is run by Megan, Marissa, Blair, and Melissa. This episode was organized and edited by Melissa. Our intro and outro music was created for us by Josh Marshall. Find his links in our show notes. For more episodes, resources, and other spooky content, find us on your favorite social media platform through our handle at CleverGhouls. Don't forget to subscribe and share, and if you really like our content, please leave us a review.